Rebel Love Podcast, where each week I'll bring you a new episode exploring love, sex, relationships, and money. Join me as together we question, explore, and strive to understand. back to another episode of the Rebel Love Podcast. I am your host, Talia, and today we're talking about something that is super important to me and I think really useful for anyone, and that is tools to communicate authentically in a relationship. So over the years, you might have heard people say good communication is the key to a happy and healthy relationship, but everybody's definition of good communication is different. So how do we know we're communicating in the most authentic way we can? And if we do end up nailing this, can we be sure that our partners can really handle the truth? Today, I am excited to speak with Dr. Susan Campbell. She's written a book titled Five Minute Relationship Repair, and she explores how important it is to be aware of the way we communicate as couples, understand and recognize when the communication is experiencing a disconnect, and share some tools we can use to repair and strengthen our relationships. Welcome, Susan. Thank you. It's glad to be back on your show. Yes, I'm really glad to have you back. So for anybody who doesn't know, Susan was a guest in the Let Love Begin Summit, um, which was released in January 2020. So I'm really excited to have her back, one of my favorite guests. So um, before we get started, for those that don't know, can you tell our audience a little bit about your background and why you decided to write this book? Well, I've been a couples counselor for 55 years. So you got a bit of experience there. <laughs> I've got a lot of years under my belt listening to people's secrets and their longings and their pains and their joys. And um, the reason I wrote this book was because what it all boils down to in miscommunication is we don't like to experience emotional pain. So nothing new there, nothing bad about not wanting to experience pain. But the thing is, there will be pain to the extent that you have learned somewhere in your background, and it goes way back to childhood, somewhere in your background, that if you are in pain, I mean, the normal pains of, you know, your mother correcting you, or maybe these are painful things for children, though. Like your father says, here, let me do that. You're not doing it right. You know, these are painful things for a child's nervous system. And when a child then shows some upset reaction, a lot of times the parents don't know how to hold that upset reaction with compassion and love. They'll criticize the child or they'll say, get over it. Because being the parent wants the child to just be happy and be strong and resilient. But when you treat your kid like that, they are going to get upset. It's normal to get upset. See, this is the thing. And even in an adult couple relationship, it's normal at times to get upset. Part Mm -hmm. of the healing is going ahead and learning to let yourself get a moderate amount of upset and talk about it and and just learn that you can't always please each other. Mm -hmm. But if you've got some repressed feelings in your psyche that come from your parent criticizing you when you were upset or not being welcoming of your tears. Maybe it was just, you know, you were an infant and you cried for some reason the parent couldn't figure out and it made them feel anxious. So 
so many things happen in that early bonding experience where the parent will be uncomfortable with the child's pain. And here's the, the wound. The child picks up. If I'm in pain, there's something wrong with me. And that's what needs healing. And that's what causes us to, I'm going to say, overreact in an adult relationship when your partner disagrees with you or gives you a look of, you know, a critical look. These are things that you would be able to deal with in a more relaxed way. Like, what's that look mean? You know, you'd be able to stay friendly. You'd be able to stay centered. Uh, or I don't like that look. Right. No. I mean, that just, I mean, that's what a person who's not triggered, and this is the word we're going to be using a lot during this interview. When you are triggered, that's when you're overreacting. person gives you a, a critical look or a tone of voice, and you just feel like a little kid again. You feel like crawling into the woodwork, or you feel really angry. So those are what we might call overreactions, but I don't mean to criticize them because they are absolutely necessary to show you that there's a wound back there in your childhood and you could actually thank your partner for triggering you because they've revealed a sensitivity in your nervous system that now you can heal in your adult relationship. So because I've worked with so many couples who are so afraid of upsetting their partner, just like they were so afraid of showing their parents that they were, or, or they're afraid of showing upset. Okay. So two sides. So just like they were in their childhood, either afraid of upsetting the parent or of showing the parent they were upset. And this isn't true of every single child, but almost every child in the industrialized world where parents are busy, they might have more than one child, they have too much going on in their own lives, they haven't even healed themselves yet. Right. And then they've got this kid and they don't know what to do with it. You know, just normal good people transferring their anxiety onto their kid. So... So now you, you get married or you're dating or even this can happen with friends and relatives too. Mm -hmm. You get triggered. So this book that I wrote, Five Minute Relationship Repair, co-authored with my friend John Gray. The idea here is it's good to admit that you get triggered. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Please just admit it. It's not a pretty picture when you're triggered, but the sooner you can admit it, the sooner you can do, do the other several steps that we teach in the book mm -hmm. to heal it. So I'll tell those steps in a minute, but yeah. I'm up for air in case you have other questions. <laughs> well, I, um, I love that you said that like admitting it really, I mean, I talk a lot about this in, in my, in, on Rebel Love and in my personal life is part of admitting mm -hmm. it is taking responsibility. And when you take responsibility, right. then you're actually able to, to do something about it. If you don't take responsibility, then it's, it's impossible to do anything about it. You'll just keep blaming other people and it will never be anything to do with you. And like you said, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It just reveals some stories perhaps that haven't been dealt with. But I want to go back to something you said earlier. You said, you know, parents want their children to be resilient, um, but they, they're not able to hold that space for them. And when you said that, yeah. I had this image of like, but resilience is built. It's, you know, it's something that builds over time because the same thing starts happening and then you, you learn how to deal with it. It's kind of like that rebound time. You're like, oh, this is happening again. Now at yeah. like the, the crust on the scab is getting a bit thicker and I'm getting, you know, that, that's how I become more resilient. So can you talk a little bit about holding that space for resilience to develop? Yeah. Let me say a little bit more about some of the preconditions for being more or less resilient. 
as a child. So first of all, when a child's development is happening in the womb, there are brain, there's brain circuitry that develops toward the time of birth. So there's things that can happen in the womb that are going to mess with your ability to be resilient. Um, wow. but the, healthy, the healthy fetus develops a strong connection between the brain that's the thinking, rational, the kind of brain that can solve problems, can see things objectively. And that same frontal brain can be reassuring yourself that, hey, remember, this happened before when she had that tone of voice, and it had nothing to do with you, actually. You know, you, you can actually right. reason with yourself, you know, right. so that brain needs to be able to have a strong connection with the reptile brain, which is back here, which develops first. And that's the brain that fight, flight, freeze, quick reactions, the survival instincts and all that come from. So that whole thing, there's, you know, there's biochemical things, there's the health of the mother, trauma during pregnancy that can affect that. So it's not just the parent's fault when this doesn't go well. It's not just diet. But then let's say that the child gets born and the first three months after birth is a very important time for the continuing development of that brain circuitry so that the child develops into a most resilient little one who can actually calm themselves down. So some children have a pretty strong connection with themselves at birth, but there's all degrees of this. So that's one factor. Just, you know, that's kind of out of your control if that was going on, you know. Something traumatic happened to your mom during the first three months or birth trauma. So I just want to make, I want to show you how in a way complex this is and you can't blame anybody if you're married to somebody who's quite triggerable. You know, a lot of things could have happened. Uh, another thing that can make you a more resilient child is your parent disappoints you or, or scares you, you know, in these little ways but they're, they're only a little bit at a time. So it's like you gradually are forced to learn to deal with these kind of challenges. And it's not overwhelming to your nervous system. But if you've got onslaughts, there's this child and there's fighting in the family every day, there's drunkenness, there's absence of the parent. If there's onslaughts to the child's sense of safety early on, then it's just too much for the child and they kind of dissociate, they go numb, they go into their own little world and they do not develop that learning of, oh, this means that I actually am still safe. Right. So, no, that's the background. Then you said, what, you know, how can you create a holding environment? I think that was your actual yeah, question. Yeah, hold, hold the space. To hold the space for the child to grow up in, and be more resilient. And parents probably need to do some of this work that we're talking about themselves mm -hmm. and own that they are triggerable themselves and learn how to regulate their own nervous systems, which means learning how to calm yourself when you get too anxious or when you're scared of the look on your partner's face, learning how to we, act, we actually teach people, say the word pause or, gee, I need a little time now before I can collect myself and resume this conversation. So parents need to have those good self-management tools and then 
their anxieties of their adult life won't be impinging on them every minute while they're trying to deal with their child. So your child starts crying. The best thing you can do is just feel now. If you're watching a movie and there's a little child reaching in the crib, reaching up for the parent like this, I want to be held, I want to be fed. And the parent in the movie just shunned the child. In the audience, you would feel terrible. So that shows, I mean, I think most people would, they'd feel empathy for that child. And that just shows that all of us adults do have a natural inborn instinct about what good parenting is. You would hold that child. You would say, oh, come, you know, come to mama, that sort of thing. And we all have that good mother archetype in our nervous systems, even if our own parents uh, didn't do that great of a job. So what you want to do is just remember what that, you know, in the movie, what you wish that nasty mother would have done or in your own childhood, what you wished your parent might have done and begin to activate an image in, inside yourself of, oh, this is what children need. I can do this. I can tolerate some crying. I can hold this child while she's crying. Mm-hmm. And I can know how to regulate my nervous system because I've already learned that as an adult. Right. I, can calm, I can breathe and calm myself and thereby help my child calm down. If I hold my child, but I'm all freaked out and and nervous about it, that's going to transfer to the child. And the child says, oh, man, something's wrong here. I shouldn't I shouldn't be expressing myself anymore. This is where a lot of repression of our own spontaneous, authentic self comes Mm -hmm. from. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, Yeah, I was actually just had this image of, you know, when a a child falls over and um, some parents are like, Oh, okay. You, you know, you'll be okay. And they'll, they'll kind of look at you for, for your reaction and then they'll react based on your reaction. And I, I really, I always find that scenario really interesting when I watch different parents deal with it. And some, or some, you know, my mom used to say, Oh, that's okay. Like cry it out. Like, it's okay. You can cry. Beautiful. Yeah. And it was really like, and then, and it kind of like when, when, as I got older, it, it was kind of frustrating actually, but it was, um, but it was good though. Right. Because it allowed that space to, you know, for that to come out. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, did you want her to be a little more nurturing? Did you want her to hold you maybe when you said frustrating? I was curious there. Oh, when I was older, just because when I was older, I kind of almost felt like patronizing even. But I certainly don't think that I know her and it's, I certainly absolutely don't think that, you know, when you just kind of like, I don't know, you just kind of want your parents to make it all better. And, and, and when <laughs> they let you deal with it, when they're like, oh, you know, you've got this, you're okay. And, you know, it's kind of like, that's the growth. You're actually in that moment going through the growth part and that, and it's not really comfortable. So I guess in that moment you want to be saved, but when someone's like, hang on a second, you're okay. Like it's not, it's not really comfortable, but you'll be okay. That's really teaching that independence, I think. And yes. And depending on what developmental stage you're at, when we're talking about a child, you know, if you're one year old, it's different of than course. when you're 11. You know what yeah, I mean? Exactly, exactly. You're talking about an 11 year old now, mm-hmm. or even an eight or seven or eight year old. You totally. know, you're on totally. the playground, you know, you're climbing on the, high, you know, the highest bars and your parents smiling and trusting you. You know, that's a good thing. Yeah. If you're, yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. You me, when you're one year old, it's good to pick the child up. And, oh, yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's developmental. And yeah. most parents have a pretty good instinct. Oh, that yeah. Different, you know, different totally. ways to treat children. But, you know, I agree with you, the spirit that, um, that your mother was, which was, you'll be okay. Because that promotes self-trust. Oh, yeah. Child. She did a great job. She said one of her goals with us was, I want to have in three independent children. And she certainly mm-hmm. did. <laughs> she accomplished that goal. So, um, yeah, I, yeah, I think she did an amazing job. I mean, I have zero complaints. So, I mean, at the time, of course, you know, you're always going to complain when you're a kid. But now I'm like, oh, man, I'm so glad that she taught me all these skills. And I remember being in the moment and being like, oh, I don't want to do this. I don't want to grow. But, you know, but I'm so grateful that I did at that time. Yeah. So you mentioned in your book, at at any given moment, we are communicating either from our higher brain or our survival brain. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think you maybe kind of hit on it before, but let's go a little bit deeper into that. Yeah. And let's, let's look at how in a couple relationship, how can two partners, you know, friends also, or even a boss with a, with a worker, how can you help the other person feel safe with you. Oh, I love that. Yes. If they feel safe with you, they're going to be communicating from this more reasonable, the part that can have empathy for the other person, you know, whereas this other part is kind of selfish, you know, the reptilian brain is just thinking about your own survival, you know, so you want to help your partner feel safe. And there's a few things you can do, particularly if they're upset you want to offer co-regulation. Co-regulation is the same thing an upset child needs, and I'm talking about the one-year-old upset child now, needs from the nurturing parent. You need body contact sometimes, you know, not a whole lot necessarily, but just, you know, a touch maybe, soothing voice tones, not like freaked out, anxious, eye contact. In other words, to help a person feel safe with you, particularly if they're upset, you want to bring a presence to them, just like a good mother brings to a hurting child. Mm-hmm. So that's called co-regulation. It's sort of like on the other end of, the, uh, end of that, if you're the hurting one and you can just say, I need a hug, that's like asking for co-regulation. And most partners can give that and it'll help you feel safe again even when maybe your jealous mind is going off or, you know, your partner didn't call when he was supposed to. And so you get insecure. You can say, I need a hug. I need reassurance. I need you to tell, you know, tell me we're okay. If you can actually ask for that. And that's, that's what healthy people can do. They can ask for what they want and they can offer co-regulation when their partner seems to need it. Mm -hmm. So, when you feel safe and you're able to do that, you're coming from this part of your brain. When you feel unsafe, then you're coming from that survival part of your brain. And everyone has a survival part of their brain that's kind of always scanning for danger in the background. And it will often see danger, see in quotes, when there really is no danger, like what you think is a critical look on your partner's face. I mean, it could be anything. Maybe they've got a toothache. Yeah. <laughs> you should ask, you know, you should yeah. say, I see a critical look. Or is that a critical look? Uh-huh. What is that look? 
you know, learn, learn to just find out, uh-huh. you know? I think might, some of that might stem from trust though, because I know that, um, I mean, in my personal experience, if, if there's no trust in the relationship, then none of this can work because if you don't trust someone and you're looking at their facial expression and you're, and you ask them and then they tell you something and you're like, I don't believe you though, you know, then I feel like there's a lot deeper issues there, <laughs> but perhaps. If you don't trust somebody, it means you hardly ever feel safe around them. Mm-hmm. There's always a level of unsafety. So you're always watching for danger. And, um, well, that needs to be looked into. Maybe you need some couples counseling. Yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> That's something you can really talk about if you really don't trust somebody. Yeah, yeah, okay. You know, you mentioned about being aware of your partner's triggers, and you sent me some questions that, that you were mm-hmm. hoping to ask. And um, remember, in the beginning, we both agreed that it's good to be able to actually say the words, I'm triggered. And so... That is really good in the beginning when you're getting to know somebody. You mm-hmm. ask, you know, are there any particular kinds of behaviors that trigger you? You, right. know, you know, you just have this conversation. And let me just define triggers for our audience. Mm-hmm. Triggers come from some fear of some kind of need not being met when you were little, like the need to feel close versus all alone with, you know, with your hurt, the need to feel valued, supported, safe, the need to feel significant, like my needs matter, my needs are important. So, um, you know, those, those basic needs. And if any of those needs were not well met when you're little, you'll still have some unfinished business that you'll carry into your adult relationship, which will be the background for your triggers, which are fears that you carry forward. Like, okay, if I was kind of ignored, you know, I had a lot of kids in the family and I was somewhere in the middle and I got lost in the shuffle. Let's say that that's a common thing. Like no one ever asked me what I felt at the dinner table. They always talked over me. If that's your past history, you may have a trigger or a fear about not being important or significant or your voice not being heard. You know how some people say, I just want to be heard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That can come from a lot of places, but that's, that's one childhood script. So these are sensitivities you bring into your present relationship. And then now, since you got the survival alarm, scanning for danger, even when things are going relatively well, it's on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not going to get triggered, though, unless your partner does something. And usually it's like out of the blue. You don't expect it. And it feels somehow familiar to, gee, nobody's listening to me. Or, gee, my needs don't matter. Or, I'm all alone. Or that sort of thing. It'll feel like you know, rejection and abandonment, being trapped, being controlled. These are all fears that can grow from unfinished needs or unfinished business from childhood. So each of us has particular sensitivities. Some are more sensitive to being kind of overwhelmed and too much closeness. Other people are more sensitive to too too much distance. Mm -hmm. A lot of times those two types get together, as we know, and work it out. Mm -hmm. So it's good to be able to have the conversation, you know, in past relationships or from what you know of your childhood, what do you know about the fears that you kind of carry into an adult relationship? Mm -hmm. 
you know, this might sound rather advanced to have. Like somebody, you know, maybe you should, most people would just kind of wait till you've been married two or three years and just let them come Unfold, up, you know, right. like, like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. I don't agree with that. It's going to get broke. So right. why don't you do some preventive things right now? Totally. Totally. I can guarantee, unless you're one of those, you know, 2% of the people who just, had everything go well in terms of your development of all these neural circuits and getting all your needs met and all that. Mm -hmm. Even if you got all your needs met, you might have the other problem of having compassion for people who are triggerable. And so that may be your learning in this lifetime. Mm -hmm. You know, you sounded like you had a pretty, pretty great parent there, but you, you might find yourself impatient with, you know, other people who are acting like a big baby. (laughs) Yes, that is very true. <laughs> very true. You know, it's, you can't win in this life. There's <laughs> no. always going to be something. So just get used to it. Relationship is a learning journey. Mm-hmm. So it's just really good to have this conversation early on. What are your triggers? Mm-hmm. What are the things that tend to trigger? Hey, have I triggered you yet? Mm-hmm. You know, like do it before it gets to be a problem. And then it's kind of a curiosity. It's that exciting getting to know you phase. Yeah, the I more love that. Work you can get done during the romance honeymoon. Phase. I was just about to say that. The better do the work then while the juices are are still juicy. Exactly. It's like when you're a child and you want to ask your parent for something, and you know it's going to be kind of like a you know, you're not sure if they're going to say yes or no. You always ask when they're in the best mood. <laughs> and I, and I, I think that you know the kids are onto something with with you know. Like I was just about to say like. When you're in the honeymoon phase, the best time to really have those conversations, maybe right. after you've made love, when the communication is flowing, it's like, great, right. l- let's talk about this hard stuff now when we're in this kind of love bubble mm-hmm. and we can, you know, but I find that some people just really uh, have, uh, you know, I think you have one particular man that I was with, um, it didn't matter how big the love bubble was. He just didn't want to talk about anything. He was so shut down. And if, if someone's partner is like that, how do we, how do we kind of break through that barrier? Or, um, you know, like this particular person, he would get triggered by me asking to talk about important things. And then he would get, his mood would switch and he'd get kind of angry and irritated, which kind of baffled me because I was like, oh, wow. Like I'm the complete opposite. I would think that this is the perfect time to have, go deeper and have a conversation. But he was so resistant to that. Well- for that kind of person, that's generally an indication that they have a trigger or fear of not being enough, not being good enough. Like, she's so good at this. I am no good at this. Why would I want to talk to her and show her how stupid I am right. about these things? So, I mean, it helps to have a little bit of insight and compassion to people who, don't, who kind of don't like this sort of thing. But maybe it's not the guy for you. No, it wasn't. You know, I mean, <laughs> Definitely wasn't the guy for me. But it was hard. But you know, <laughs> or but was- seminars. You know, if you take a person like that to couples counseling or seminars, I've I've been amazed because some people have told me how shut down their partners are. But when they feel the safety of working with a third party like me, somebody who's experienced, geez, everything comes out. Yeah. And the partner is truly amazed. And it's not always the man who shut down. Yeah. I have many men have to drag a silent totally. common partner, but it's almost always the same dynamic is, you know, I'm just not good at this. I'm not a very verbal person. I'm an introvert. 
mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. about certain types of people because of their early learning and their personality type are going to be a lot more uh, slow to learn mm-hmm. these kind of tools. Mm-hmm. Some people are just this wouldn't be that guy, but some people, their whole personality is just too chaotic right. to be able to use any of these tools because they can't even notice when they're triggered or can't even notice I'm right. upset. They can't even notice they're upset. They just act out everything, you know, mm-hmm. like an automaton. Those yeah. people don't bother reading my books. Yeah, yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> yeah, they're they're not, they're not, you know, this, this stuff that I talk about and write about is, is, is for people who have a certain ability to look inward and admit to um, weaknesses, to mm-hmm. be vulnerable a little yes. bit. Yes. That can grow. You can start with a tiny bit of willingness because most people honestly do want to grow if they feel safe enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you're one of those people that says, you know, my partner never wants to talk to me, well, are you making it safe for your partner or are you always hounding their ass? Right. Oh, that's a really important distinction. Making them feel put down like a little, you know, a little small. Mm-hmm. You know how many people when they're triggered say, I just feel small. And now as you talk to me, I'm feeling smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. That's not a, a feeling that makes you want to express. Yes, yes, yes. I think, I think that's the perfect time when the couples counseling can come in and kind of, you know, build that bridge in the communication when the, when it's so lost. And um. It's funny, actually, I interviewed um, somebody else on the podcast, um, April, actually, and she talked about how couples counseling saved her marriage. She said, like, my relationship now is the best literally it's ever been. My husband still pursues me. And I can't remember exactly, but she said she'd been married for like 20 years. And she said, honestly, my counselor single-handedly saved our marriage. (laughs) And I, and and yeah, and she said her husband feels the same way. And it's just been incredible for their communication. So that really gave me a lot of hope that relationships can be revived if people put in the work, you know, if they do the work, because as you're saying, a lot of these things that we need to work through are coming from our childhood. And if we're in our thirties or forties, you know, some people even their fifties and sixties and they still haven't dealt with those things from when they Mm. were children. Oh my gosh. It's kind of like, it just keeps getting stuff piled on top of it. And it's so far down that we need to, you know, dig it out. No matter what age you are, you can start this journey though. And Mm -hmm. I do want to say, you don't always have to start with couples counseling. Start with my book, Five Minute Relationship Repair, because it is a self-guided workbook for how to create safety in a relationship first, because that's the best prevention, mm-hmm. and then how to patch it up when you haven't created mm-hmm. safety and you've both gotten triggered or one of you's gotten triggered. Yeah, I love it. After a fight. And it just really shows you how to work with your differences and heal heal yourself and help each other heal. Mm -hmm. You can work with that. If that doesn't work, then call a counselor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love that. Awesome. People say, well, you know, there's no counselors in my town. Well, now we're doing almost everything online. Online. I was just about to say, yeah. And they might say, and online works great. Totally. Most of my clients are people I've never met in person. So just want to put on a plug for that and also cost. People say, oh, I can't afford it. Somewhere there are people who are doing this for very, you know, for very low fees. They're trainees. Just, you just keep looking, searching the internet, mm-hmm. you know, reaching out to authors like myself. There's always people that I'm training that are looking for people to practice on that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Now they might not be 
experience. Sure. But you'll get something. And some mm-hmm. of the new counselors are very good. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I just want to mention actually, while we're on this subject, I've been to uh, like counselors and psychologists over the years. And I just want to say that it is like a relationship. If you don't, if they're not a good fit for you, it doesn't mean that counseling or relationship therapy is not a good fit for you. It just means that maybe they are not. So, you know, in my experience, always just switch it up because, you know, I've, I've had friends who have been like, well, it's just not really working. They don't really get me. And I'm like, I'm like, well, if you really feel that way, try somebody else. And then they do. And they're like, oh my gosh, this is so much better. This woman just gets me. This man just gets me. So I just want to mention that. Yeah. Cause I know a lot of people just give up on that. They're like, oh, it didn't work. I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to quickly go back to one of the questions that I, I planned on asking you. Um, can you explain the difference between communicating to relate versus communicating to control? Sure. I wrote a book called Getting Real. Uh, came out in 2001, but it's still very timely. And that's the book where I teach people 10 truth skills you need to live authentically. So it's a little different. It's not about couples. It's just about your own authenticity. And it's basically communication for your own self-awareness. So a lot of people will notice every once in a while that they're doing something kind of automatic, like smiling and nodding, because you hope the person will finish saying what they're saying quicker if you show a lot of interest. I mean, that might not be your reason for smiling and nodding. It could be sincere. <laughs> but, uh, or you might even be sub, you know, unconscious of that you're smiling and nodding, because you're, and I've done this myself, because I want everyone to feel safe around them. Right. Oh, and I'm, I'm just over-validating them with my gestures. We call those things control patterns. Mm. Let me give you some other examples. Sometimes people don't know how to ask for what they want in a clear way. So they'll say things like, wouldn't you rather go out to eat than cooking in tonight? You know, they'll make it like a question. And then, you know, then you hear that and you go, well, no. What do you, I mean, what gave you the impression that I want to go out to eat? You know, it's like confusing. And you're asking that because, you know, you're kind of hoping the other person will say, yeah, let's go out to eat. So you're trying to kind of manipulate the outcome without owning the fact that, yeah, I'd like to go out to eat. How about you? Right. <laughs> that would be relating. Okay, relating would be speaking your truth and truly listening to the other person. So relating is two-way conversations. You're not inhibited about what you need to express. You just like say what you need to say. Hey, when you said that, I felt hurt. Like somebody's late for lunch, you know, like by quite a bit, quite a bit late for lunch. They say, oh, you know, were you waiting long? Oh, no, no, it was okay. And the truth is you're hurt. So relating would be when you asked me that question and I told you I wasn't, I wasn't hurt. The truth is I was, you know, I told you it was okay. The truth is I was hurt. So you, you know, you just say, what's true, or you would, the first time you'd say, well, to tell you the truth, I was thinking maybe, you know, you'd forgotten and that maybe I'm not that important to you. You know, you just reveal. That's Mm -hmm. relating. Controlling Mm -hmm. is trying to manage the other person's reaction in some way or sort of manage your own self-image like, oh, I don't want to look like I'm a big baby, so I'll say, no, I'm not hurt. So all the ways that we manage our image or manage the other person, like hoping to get them to say 
let's go out to eat. Those are called controlling or control patterns. And I made this distinction because it's so very common for people to be on automatic, just doing their you know, people pleaser thing or, or their big shot thing or the know-it-all thing or whatever they're doing. They're doing their act. And if you really ask them, well, what are you feeling underneath this? And what are you needing? It'd be a different story, but they just haven't learned to look. And so relating is authentic, two-way, not censored. Of course, you care about the other person, so you, you know, you're not like mean, but it's all genuine, whereas uh, controlling is kind of protected and strategic. So mm-hmm. it's good to have that distinction because sometimes later on you realize, oh, I was controlling and not relating there, and I want to clean it up. So I go back and I say what I was really feeling was this. Right. And there's another true skill in the book, Getting Real, mm-hmm. where it shows you how to go out and come in again and, and redo a phony or automatic communication. Mm-hmm. I love that too, because in that kind of cleaning it up, you can, you can say why, or you can even say things like, oh, I yes. didn't even kind of realize I was doing it. But upon reflection, you know, I discovered this. Exactly. It's never too late to clean it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People think, oh, what's done's done. Hope they forget about it or hope I forget about it. And the thing is, it, it nags at you sometimes. <laughs> you, know, you can't forget about it. Yeah, totally. And I think when it nags at you and, and it's kind of like, in your space energetically, uh-huh. you have to kind of clean it up to, to dissipate that, I think, because otherwise it's between you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So just um, before we wrap this, the, this up, I do have a couple more questions, but I know we're running out of time. So um, I wanted to quickly touch on active listening, active listening, and also just quickly about the process of the calm, uh, pause, calm, repair, and how important it is to repair upsets and misunderstandings. Well, actually, we kind of just kind of went over that. So it, that was just another way of labeling it. Can you quickly touch on those things, active listening? Start with a pause, calm, repair, and, and, and I can probably bring in the active listening. I'll define active listening in a minute for those okay. who don't know. But back to triggers. So we said, you know, people are going to get triggered. They're going to react kind of instinctively from a survival place. And they're going to feel their nervous systems either getting agitated or shut down. Or you're not going to feel that, but you're going to notice thoughts that indicate that you're triggered because not everybody is in touch with their bodies, but they, they, they'll notice a thought like, man, you know, I can't seem to get anything right with this person. They'll, you'll notice some kind of thought, maybe a judgmental thought. So the first sign of triggering, we teach people, and I say we, I'm talking about my co-author and I, because it's in this book. But I've been teaching this for years, and so has he before we wrote the book. So the first thing when you notice that either your partner or you is triggered, you speak the word pause. Now, you have to have a prior agreement that this is a good idea. So somebody says pause, and that means everybody stops talking. And you then calm yourself. So that's the second step. First pause. (laughs) Sometimes it's hard to get yourself to pause, but... You know, that's a technicality. Talk about that in the book. Calm yourself. Take a few breaths right there with each other before you even take a break from each other. And you just slow, deep breaths, calm your nervous system for a little bit. You won't get it fully calm. And then you'll say, uh, how long do we need to really 
soothe ourselves and calm ourselves. And so then you agree on a time. And we have some shortcuts for how to quickly agree on a time to come back and check in with each other. But during that calming period, after you kind of separate, if it's been a big upheaval, you'll have to separate if it hasn't. Sometimes you just pause, calm yourself, and you can get back to the conversation. So it depends on how much damage was done. Right. Like if you start calling names to each other, then that's, um, that's going to take longer to repair or to calm yourself from. Mm-hmm. If you've heard some nasty uh, words coming at you. Okay, so you've got pause, you've got calm, and then there is one other thing, which is you start to feel your feelings with gentleness and compassion. Remember we talked about the good mother archetype, the, mo- the mother who's impatient with their little child versus the mother who picks the child up and holds that child with tenderness. It says, oh, I know you're hurting. You do that with yourself. Maybe you'll touch the part of your body where your agitation is, like your heart or your belly. Um, maybe you'll even hug yourself. Not, not right away. I mean, it takes a while to get to the, you know, to feel moved to do that. But you can just be with yourself and maybe there'll be a memory that will come up of other times when you felt this way. So the idea is just to honor your pain, not try to rush past it. Give it a little space, breathe with it, say, ah, you know, it's okay to feel. Like we talked about, you know, the good mom, it's okay to, to feel whatever you feel. And so this is done usually in private, but then you've got this date. You've said, okay, we're going to come back and check in with each other in half an hour. You've got this date to come back and repair. And repair is where you say, hey, I was triggered. In my head, I was blaming you, but I'm, I'm, I've let go of that now. I can see now that this was my fear of not being enough that got triggered. And I need your help feeling that I am enough. So it's a short script that's based on whatever your fears and needs are. So we tailor it, but it's in the book how you can figure out the best words to use that are not defensive and that are vulnerable and that actually show your partner what they can do to help you feel loved and safe again. So that's pause, calm, repair. It's actually pause, calm, self-soothe and repair. But sometimes you can... At the first sign of trigger, you can use active listening to slow things down and perhaps calm your nervous system. If you kind of think maybe your partner's getting triggered, but you haven't gotten triggered yet. A lot of times, if they're triggered, you're going to be kind of triggered too, because there's an upset in the field. But if you're not so triggered, you might say, wait, um, let me see if I got what you said. So here's the definition of active listening. You repeat back what you heard your partner say, using some of their own words so they know they're really heard. Not getting too fancy, actually, but at the end, you just repeat back some of it, and you say, did I, did I get what you said? And the partner will either correct you or not. But you're slowing, the point is here, You're helping them feel heard and valued just by doing that. But even more important sometimes, 
you're giving your own mind something to do. So you're not worried. Oh my God, my partner's out of control. What do I do? I got to put out, put out the fire or maybe you're going to start getting defensive because you're starting to get triggered. So it gives you something constructive to occupy your mind and your mouth with so you don't make the problem worse. Nice. But active listening can be used at other times too, but I kind of want to want to tie it in there with, oh, mm-hmm. in the case of mild triggers, it can be helpful. Well, I, th- I, I can imagine in a work environment, that would be very useful as well, the active listening. Yes. No yeah. miscommunication. If there's a, a topic that you kind of know has some mind feels there and landmines, I mean, in it. And um, you want to be extra cautious. You might suggest, we know that this is a topic we haven't always agreed on. So let's do the active listening practice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's where you actually take turns repeating back what you heard the person say. Mm. And you keep asking, did I get it? Until they affirm that, yes, I feel fully heard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? How we can, because we can really interpret things differently as well. Like, it's like someone will be like, "Well, you said this," and you're like, "Well, actually, that's not that's not what I said at all." And so, you know, let's let's figure this out. Yeah, it's good practice too in the act of listening to be able to hear your partner say, "No, that's not what I said at all," mm-hmm. and maybe you repeated their words perfectly, but they still might say, "That's not what I said at all." Uh, I interesting. Want to get used to that. You know, it's mm-hmm. part of being a grown up. Mm-hmm. You don't always get things served on a silver platter to your ego. You know, your partner might not have liked the version. You know, I mean, you, you feed it back to them. They say, oh, no, that's not what I said at all. You did it perfectly. But they realize, oh, I don't, I don't really mean that. Or I don't really want to come across that way. Right. right. So they revise it. Your job is the active listener. It's just do the practice. That's why we need an attitude of practice. Mm-hmm. Practice means just do the form like Tai Chi, yoga, meditation. Just do the thing and the positive results will follow from doing the thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you try to get your own originality in there, you're, I mean, ego is good. Ego is a part of the self. Oh, I have a good sense of self. That's the ego. But the ego part that I'm talking about is the one that has to look good and be in control and always get exactly what you want that's within your comfort zone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You will not get that in an intimate relationship. Makes sense. Uh, active listen is a great practice for seeing if you cannot get your button pushed too much when your partner says, no, I didn't mm-hmm. say that. And you did. Mm-hmm. Don't get into an argument. You just have to keep saying, okay, so what did... What did you want me to hear? Yeah, keep working through it. They revised it. They cleaned it up a little. You say, oh, so I hear you saying, ah, yes, now that's it. Right, right. Takes people a while to figure out what they really are Mm -hmm. trying to say Mm -hmm. sometimes. And it's funny, um, I have a a very, very close best friend and um, we always say to each other that like us not being friends is not an option, so we better figure it out. And I think that that's a really kind of like (laughs) nice note to leave it on with a partner. If you're like, if you know this person's the one, you're like, well, breaking up's not an option. So we, be- we best figure this out and here's some tools to do that. So yeah, thank you so much, Susan. It has been a pleasure as always speaking to you. I always learn so many things and I could talk to you for hours. So I so appreciate you being here. How do people um, find out about you? Where can they go to um, get in touch with you and find out more? 
Okay, well, I have a website, uh, susancampbell.com, and on the homepage, there's a place where you can sign up for my free monthly newsletter. It's something about, it says something about enroll here. I don't know why they put the word enroll, but anyway, that's, you know, I don't have control of that. <laughs> and, uh, I think that was the, <laughs> the program that they were using, but then it says you'll also get a free ebook about how to have unshakable self-confidence. And so some of the things that I've talked about with you are in this ebook. And my newsletters once a month always tell the time of my free Getting Real group coaching call. Oh, awesome. Now, let's see, you're, you know, you're in Australia, but you, you know, it's, it's around this time. Well, of course, we're not live, are we? We're not no. live. <laughs> no, we're no, not. It's, it's 4, it's 4 p.m. U.S. time, um, which I think might be the, the next morning. I think it's the next morning in Australia. Are you in yeah. Australia? Yeah, we started at 8 a.m. 8 a.m. So when you say 4 p.m., is that EST, Eastern time? 4 p.m. 4 p.m. Pacific time. Okay. So it's always at 4 p.m. Pacific time. Okay. Your audience is all over the world. So is mine. So, you know, it's not that great for people in Europe, but um, no, it's pretty great time for people in Australia and Indonesia and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, and of course the U.S. is fine for people in the U.S. So I, I do a free um, working with people for free online. I might work with them, you know, five to 10 minutes each, helping them with some kind of trigger. Uh, we might do just Q&A. Uh, sometimes we might just put a question out to the whole group and the group answers it. But it's always a lively discussion. And um, so if anybody like this interview and you want to stay in touch yeah sign up for my newsletter and come to my free monthly coaching calls that is super valuable and super generous thank you so much for that and if you want to find out more you can go to rebellove.com slash dr susan campbell and i'll have all of the details here for you thank you again and um, enjoy the rest of your day all right nice to be with you again talia thank you always nice to be with you <laughs> For listening to the Rebel Love Podcast, the podcast about love, sex, relationships, and money. If you like this episode, please support us by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. And find all the details of this episode and more at rebellove.com forward slash podcast.